if you're looking for a relationship or in a relationship, this is the episode to listen to because we have matchmaker Rebecca Macias with us today. Uh, she works with the three day rule. So check that out. Three day rule.com. And we're going to talk about what people look for in a relationship and what they should be looking for before they get into a relationship. And then we also discuss how to manage and navigate once you're in a relationship. There's so many different attachment styles, and we're going to go over those and how that shows up. We're going to talk about how Rebecca Macias pulled herself out of a depression and how to find calm during this time uh, of chaos. And, and, and then most importantly, we talk about the, the neurobiology of trauma. Like how does it affect your brain? How does it affect our attachments? And we talk about the themes and trends in your, in your family history and, and also your relationship history and how that affects uh, your, your current relationship or the relationship that you're looking for. So this is a great episode. We had so much fun. Um, if you haven't, go to Thrive with Leo Flowers or leo.com if you want one-on-one coaching with yours truly, thrivewithleo.com, one-on-one coaching. And with that said, let's get into the episode. Here's why uh, I'm so excited to have you on because although we had one session with you, I was telling uh, my girlfriend, I was like, I immediately felt comfortable talking to you. Like you, you have a very soothing uh, presence about you. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm all in. Oh, I love that. Thank you. That is the highest compliment, honestly, that I can receive. Because I think, you know, so much of what I've struggled with in my role as a therapist is how to just bring my authentic self with boundaries. I think a lot of times, you know, when you're going through training, they really drill it into you in graduate school and even in, you know, your internships after that, like boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. They really want you to be boundaried. Don't share personal thing, you know, personal facts, information. Clients don't need to know that. And it's hard because you, you almost want to create two different personalities. Like there's the therapy side of you and the human side of you. And, but I, you know, in my work and the way that I have loved my previous therapist is just authenticity. And I feel like you can feel when you want to be vulnerable if someone's not authentic. And so really integrating like who I am as a person and who I am as a therapist has been so much of, of my work in the profession. So, um, so that is the best compliment I could receive. Thank you for that. You know, I've, I've read so many times about, you know, being authentic, be real, especially in dating. They like, just show up as yourself, just be you. And yeah. I was like, what the hell does that mean? Like, yeah. are you talking about me at 8 a.m. or me at 8 p.m. or me at midday or after a nap without a nap? Like, there's so many me's. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so true. I know. And, yeah, that's actually something I've I've uh, questioned myself. There's so many different sides that what's really authentic, you know? I think, um, you know, what I found works for me is, uh, is the, the authenticity is like, who am I now mm-hmm. in this moment? Right. It's uh, especially like in, in when I was dating, it was it's like I, realizing that different women brought up different. Um, uh, I don't want to say urges, but I, I felt differently about 
like some women I was more attracted to physically. Some of them it was more about an energy or it was uh, their brand. Like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. to it, um, and to be honest and uh, aware of that and recognizing that there are different levels uh, of attraction. Uh, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I think I might have told you and Michelle this, but whenever you're interacting with someone, there's two different conversations happening, right? There's like what you guys are actually verbally saying to each other. And then there's nervous systems communicating with each other. So you'll notice that some people make you feel really energized. Some people make you feel really calm. You have different reactions to people. And it's important to tune into that, especially in dating, because you know, you are choosing a partner that you are hopefully going to be around a lot. And it's important to know, do I feel calm around this person? Do I feel safe around this person? Do I feel like I can be myself? Do I feel like I can access my goofy side, my intellectual side, right? Like just really tuning into how do you notice yourself around that person instead of what are the traits about this person that are on my checklist, right? Because sometimes that's not the best indicator. You know, I love that because uh, when I need a laugh, I have friends that I'll call for a laugh. Uh, But then I'll have friends that I call for advice. There's some friends who I call for. uh, It's almost like rolling a dice. I don't know what I'm going to get when they answer the phone. And uh, as I've gotten older and become more aware of the dynamics of my friendships with different people, it's made the relationships uh, a lot smoother. Right. Yeah. Uh, but also to recognize those moments in myself, too, of like, oh, when I do this, I, I tend to feel this. And when I say that, I feel that. And, and recognizing my energy around my relationship with like food and TV and like it, we're, we're just all navigating relationships. Right. Exactly. We're all just in relation to something. That's our whole perception is how we relate to our surroundings, our environment, the people around us. So it is so important to tune into that. And that's actually a lot of a huge part of how I do matchmaking personally is when I'm sitting with a client, I'm noticing how I'm feeling internally. And, you know, there is a a fine line between, you know, understanding what's yours that you're bringing into this dynamic and kind of feeling what this other person's bringing out in you. But, you know, if I have somebody who's a true extrovert, who's really outgoing, when I'm taking my match meetings for them, looking for potential matches for them, you know, I'm noticing who can maybe be on that energy level, who can access that energy level, who brings out the same feelings in me and trying to assess, is this a a good connection? And is this a sustainable connection? You know, what I love about this conversation and, and, you know, this is a suicide prevention podcast and people are like, what does matchmaking and dating have to do with, but it, it, I bring it up because with suicidality and especially with depression, um, there's a lot of fixed mindsets taking place mm-hmm. where people get into a state of hopeless, feeling hopeless and that that's never going to change or they feel isolated or lonely. And I'm bringing up this idea of which me are we talking about and who brings out what part of me because to, to, to demonstrate that what you're feeling and what you're experiencing is not a permanent state. There, there are no permanent states and, and also to make you aware of your environment and the people in your environment of what are they bringing out of you? Like people are like salt. It's like cooking, like mm-hmm. salt brings out the, the flavors, but it depends on 
what's been put in there. And so, you know, to to look at it like that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, too, a lot of times with depression and with suicidality, it feels like, you know, depression isn't necessarily feeling sad all the time. I think that's one of the most common misconceptions from people who haven't experienced depression, but it's really apathy. It's a lack of feeling, which is sometimes the scariest part. And so there can feel like a lack of connection, a lack of, you know, feeling authentically connected to anyone, a lack of feeling like you matter that anybody cares about you. But the reality is even you having an experience of someone is your connection to them, right? It doesn't have to be a pleasant experience. It doesn't have to be enjoyable, but just that you are in relation to everything that surrounds you. And in that way, you very much matter, even if it doesn't feel enjoyable or pleasant in the moment. You know, in a relationship, when people say, I just don't feel connected to you, I don't feel, I don't, I don't have feelings for you anymore. Uh, what's really happening? What's really taking place? Yeah. I mean, it could be so many different things. I find that more often than not, when that's happening, it's been slow disconnection throughout time that has, you know, led to that. It's not like one day you feel connected to your partner and the next day it just completely turns off and it's like a light switch. So I think a couple things contribute to that. And that's, you know, are you communicating openly with your partner? Are you noticing that you're wanting to hide more and more things? Um, are you noticing that you're wanting to avoid difficult conversations and conflict even? Um, you know, it's never alarming to me when I see couples who are arguing a lot. It's more alarming to me when I see couples who aren't arguing at all, right? Like it's not even worth it in their connection to have these fights anymore, to have these tough conversations. So I think oftentimes it's small little steps that lead up to it. And sometimes we don't want to acknowledge those little steps because we would rather feel disconnected than feel high conflict or feel an explosion of having a tough conversation. But the accumulation of not diving into some of the more uncomfortable parts of a relationship can oftentimes lead to that bigger picture of disconnection. What are people afraid of with that? with taking those small little steps. What's the, what are they, what are they, what's the fear there? A lot of what is this going to mean about me or am I going to hurt my partner? So the most common thing that I hear all the time is I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with the reaction, right? Like when you see couples who are really, really going in a, in a hard space, a lot of times you hear like, I would just rather go on with my daily life and be civil, then have to get into it and, you know, have this difficult conversation. I think it just brings up a lot of very unpleasant emotions and you have to really reflect on yourself too and what you're bringing into that that dynamic. And I think, you know, now that we're all in quarantine, we have a little bit more space and I'm noticing people have more tolerance for some of the more unpleasant things because we were all forced into it. But before that, it's like, you can distract yourself. You can work 10 hours a day, go to the gym, make yourself busy enough to not have to feel those unpleasant emotions. So why would you choose to feel that and go through that with your partner when you can just avoid it? Right. So, and I'm careful to use the words unpleasant emotions and pleasant emotions, because I think a lot of times we think of them as negative. So it's like, if I'm fighting with my partner, if I'm angry, if I'm feel bad about myself, it's so negative. It's, you know, we want to run away from that, but the more that we can lean into that, the deeper we can connect with our partners, the more we can understand ourselves and just realize that it's an unpleasant emotion, but it's a positive experience in general. 
You know, I love that you phrase it as pleasant versus unpleasant, as opposed to good or bad or positive or negative, uh, because that's really what we're talking about. Like, it's just a, a discomfort. It's a it's we're trying to uh, avoid. We're creatures of comfort. We want to be comfortable, and uh, what we don't want is to have those uncomfortable uh, conversations. And but what's what's fascinating to me is in uh, hiding and in, in holding back uh, what we really want to say and how we really feel because we don't want to hurt our partner, it ends up hurting the relationship, which is, I, I think, the third component, right? It's like, there's me, there's you, and then there's the relationship. And, Absolutely. And so in you trying to save your partner, you are hurting the relationship and creating a, a, a distance between them. Right. Exactly. Right. We don't want to hurt our partners. We maybe don't want to offer them feedback. Don't want to ask for a particular need because we worry that they might not feel good about themselves, but it's exactly right. It's the relationship. In fact, that's how a lot of relationship therapists think about it is the client is the relationship, not one into two individuals as a couple, right? It's just nurturing that relationship together. Because, you know, at the root of it, uh, is to, to tie it back in a, a suicidality is it not wanting to hurt the partner is you're also saying like, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to lose you. And uh, it is that there's a threat of belongingness of like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt the relationship. I don't want to hurt us. But sometimes we, we have to trust that the other person can handle our pain mm-hmm. Um, in order for you, in order for the relationship to grow, like there can be no growth without some pain. And uh, I think that, um, a lot of what we see in media and movies and like that, like that part's not covered. It's not addressed And our parents. haven't, you know, they're not equipped to educate us and share that part with us. Right. I think that's such a huge point to mention, and especially when it comes to, you know, depression, anxiety, suicidality, any kind of mental health concern, just anything in general. It's like we really need to learn how to hold each other in pain way better than we're doing. Right. So we a lot of times want to fix someone. We want to make them feel better. We, you know, we think about how our parents even reacted to us when we were in distress, when we were little, like, it's okay, it's okay. You know, just trying to make us feel better instantly instead of holding space and allowing that pain. So I used to have a a supervisor as a therapist who would tell me all the time, you need to allow everybody the dignity of their own pain because pain is often what catapults us into growth, into self-love, into feeling resilient. What, what makes us feel like complete people and it's really hard to not feed into that need to want to make someone feel better because it's uncomfortable for us personally to see somebody else in pain. So just the experience of seeing your partner in pain, not fixing it, but just being there and tolerating it and kind of feeling a part of that pain with them is is so important. And even not just your partner, your friends, your family, anyone it's so hard, especially, and, and not to stereotype, but as a guy, you know, we're raised to be fixers, to get in there. If there's a problem, you fix it. If our girl is upset, we fix it. And, and a lot of times when we're talking about emotions, it's not, like you said, about fixing an emotion. It's about feeling the emotions. And I don't 
know what that is in the background. Hold on one second, <laughs> Rebecca. We, we had a Bluetooth get, uh, glitch. That's the thing about having Bluetooth in the house. You forget like what's hooked up to what, and then you click play, and then <laughs> it's not playing. <laughs> I used to accidentally all the time, unintentionally go into Bluetooth on while I was on a phone call into my fiance's uh, headset. So I would enter into his conversation. <laughs> not a good situation. <laughs> I did that once with, uh, I was pulling up to Michelle's house and my phone is hooked up to her car's Bluetooth. And my buddy was just telling me about the wildest night out he had just had. And she had her windows down. And as soon as I got close enough to her car, it jumped from my phone into her car and just started <laughs> blasting <laughs> all over the place. It was so embarrassing because it was like real X-rated. I was like, whoa, whoa. And, and yeah. I didn't know it was coming from her car. I thought it was my car. So like I'm, I'm like hitting buttons and cut, trying to cut things off. And I'm like, that was like, uh-oh. So, yeah. yeah. Just sheer panic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I read somewhere in terms of like, uh, and, and, and I, I forgot what we were even talking about, but that's fine. But, uh, but it just had me thinking about, uh, like, uh, when we talked and had our session, you mentioned the importance of me and Michelle savoring our moments together. Uh, because we were talking about how busy we were, we're just like running around doing things, and and you're like it's so, and I just love that word, savor your moments together. Is that is that something? Is that a word that resonates with you for a reason or? Absolutely, yeah. When I think of savoring, of course, my mind goes to food because that's where my mind often goes. But I think about just that moment of like really letting it sink in, right? Like you've just taken a bite of like a decadent cupcake and you're just savoring the moment, savoring the sensations, engaging all of your senses. And, um, you know, to give you some background, a lot of what I studied as a therapist and what kind of was my main source of interest was, uh, trauma and more so just the neurobiology of trauma and how it impacts our nervous system, how it impacts our physiology, uh, and because I love science and I love humans. So that was kind of my way to integrate the two. So, um, you know, we are wired to really implant negative memories very quickly in a second, right? Because it helps us survive. So back in the day, if you saw a bear, you know, you could access that it was dangerous and you could do what you needed to do to stay safe. So now obviously we don't have the same threats all the time, but we perceive, you know, um, losing somebody in our life is very dangerous. So anytime we feel the threat of, um, a ruptured attachment that feels very scary to us because we are creatures that need to be connected. We don't want to be alone. And in fact, we can't survive completely on our own. So we are wired to implant all of these negative experiences so quickly. And our brain isn't wired to implant the positive memories quite as quickly, which is why, you know, it's so easy to, if you're given a review at work, you get 10 positive things and one negative comment and you're going to dwell on that negative comment. It's just the way that we are wired. So 
we really do have to put in this conscious effort and energy into savoring and really indulging in small, pleasant experiences. So whether this is the way that the sun feels after 10 rainy days in a row and the sun hits your skin because it's a nice warm day and it feels really great on your body, that will be implanted if we can savor it for 20 to 30 seconds as often as is what they say, how long to savor it for. But really engaging all of your senses. Like, what do I smell right now? What do I feel right now? What can I see? What can I hear? Because that will help offset our desire to want to see the world so negatively. So it's not that we're putting on, you know, rose colored glasses and thinking everything's all great all the time, but it allows us to see the world in a more neutral way so that we can be more resilient when tough times do come up and see that they are temporary. They will pass. And there are beautiful moments, even in really tough moments. I love that. You know, it, obviously it brings to mind food as, as you talk about savoring and indulging. And, and I think that's part of the allure of watching those uh, uh, food docu-series. There's one called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And uh, the, the host, just watching her eat food is it she looks like she savors and indulges mm-hmm. in every single bite and uh and 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 it makes me uh, it, it's what you pay for when you go to a nice restaurant is when you go to like a crappy restaurant you just you just kind of like chew through the meal in a matter of seconds but like when you're at a nice one and and the and the food is just layered with flavors uh you, you actually let it sit on your tongue like like you just took a sip of wine and 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 indulge it but you're you're so right in um just taking time to savor those small moments uh i i realize i i i try to be more intentional about that especially when i go on like walks in the morning and feeling the breeze on my face or the sun hitting my skin or hearing kids play like those little things that really bring you true joy Right. Yeah. And I think the other really important piece of that too, is that those then can become resources for you. So if you can implant those sensory experiences into your nervous system, into your body, then when you are, you know, when it is 20 degrees outside, you're freezing, you're wishing for a warm day, you can then recall what that felt like. You could do some visualization exercises. You can really think about what you were sensing and hearing and, and seeing and touching in those moments. And it, it truly does activate the nervous system in that way and has a calming effect. So um, I always like to back up some of my woo-woo LA thoughts with science because I know that we can appear sometimes like therapist in LA can be very like out there. But the truth is that it's it's science and that our nervous system can recall these memories and use them as resources later when we do need them. Absolutely. Uh, the, I, I just read a book on the neuroscience of uh, depression the uh called the upward spiral and he talked about how it's the hippocampus i mean when people talk about my mind's playing tricks on me it really is the hippocampus is part of the brain that stores a lot of wants to store a lot of the negatives and and forget the positives and so that's the importance to me of uh taking time to journal and and write down things that you're grateful for and just kind of taking notes of your day because you're right by the end of the day you've forgotten all the the little smiles and the thank yous and the, uh, you know, the, the, the little flirtatious uh, eye contact that you're making and the 
and that she made you uh, uh, overnight oats in the morning. Like all these little things, uh, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, that are part of the five love languages that that may have taken place uh, by the end of the day. So it's good to take note of that uh, right before you go to bed. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I just I was reading this somewhere. I forget what I was reading some article, but talking about how when we engage in social media right after an experience, like after, you know, let's say we end this conversation and right away I go on Instagram, it doesn't allow us to implant those memories. So just also being mindful about social media, especially right now in quarantine, it's so easy to just go to your phone, go to TV, go to some kind of screen to check out because life is hard right now for a lot of people. And um, you know, giving yourself like a little, even a 30 second break, like I'm going to give myself a little bit to just sit in whatever's happening in my body right now. And then I'll allow myself 10 minutes on social media, you know, however you want to navigate that. I love that. You know, I've just started incorporating into my practice, uh, taking, uh, mind, like mindfulness breathing breaks throughout my day because we're I'm doing so many things throughout the day. Uh, you know, between the podcast episodes and coaching and uh, training, uh, I found that I can become overwhelmed uh, quite quickly. So to just sit and do nothing in silence and, and meditate uh, for five to ten minutes and then go on to the next task versus going from thing to thing to thing, I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed and grateful that I can take time in between things and, uh, and reset so to speak. So you're absolutely right. right. Yeah. Is it ever hard for you to want to take those breaks, even though you know they're beneficial, even though they might be like scheduled into your, into your plans ever? Does it ever cross your mind? Of, oh, I, I could be more productive doing X, Y, Z. Yeah. You know, especially on the nights when, or the days where I, I don't get enough sleep the night before, uh, then I'm, I'm mostly all like amygdala. I'm just all limbic system. Yeah. Uh, I'm just all pure fight and flight that day. Uh, but not all the time. There's some nights where I don't get a lot of sleep and I'm actually even killed. But then there, I think if it's like too many days in a row, then uh, then there's just a day where I can feel it as soon as I wake up. And I'm like, oh, I'm just uh, I'm going to be like snacking for most of the day or uh, just kind of anxious, not feeling present. And even in those moments where I go, I know that uh, I, I sh- should sit down. The thing is, it hasn't become enough of a habit yet for it to be my default coping skill, right? So I'll, I'll notice halfway through like a, a bag of grapes or chips, I'll be like, oh, I didn't really want these chips. I, I really just want to sit down and meditate for 10 seconds, or I really wanted to stretch, or I just really need to go for a walk or call a friend or all these different coping strategies that aren't natural to me yet they're they're not built in they're not you know entrenched in my neural synapses and so i i have to be super mindful of it but uh but it is good that i'm noticing it at least halfway through it versus at the end or the next day or something you know like the the window of of reaction to mindfulness is getting smaller and smaller yeah yeah I think it's so, uh, I always like to just see how people kind of go on their journey to starting to incorporate these habits because it's hard. It's so much harder than we think. And I think there's so much information out there about why meditation is great, why mindfulness is great, exercise, all of these things. But 
you know, especially when you're just not feeling emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically well, it, it, it's very, very hard. It doesn't feel like the natural thing to do sometimes. So I think, you know, I know for myself, it's takes a lot of active energy and a lot of awareness to do some of the things that I know will help me and and make me feel better in the long run. So I always like to acknowledge that piece of like, you know, it, it sounds beautiful and it sounds great and uplifting. And sometimes in practice, it's not so pretty. It's not so tidy. And you know what? It's it's fun, too, to laugh at yourself. I have to remember that to, you know, because sometimes I'll meditate and I never get into that sunken place, you know, where uh, where there's there's nothingness and, and the, the thoughts stop. Uh, sometimes I sit there and I'm I'm literally obsessing uh, over something or ruminating about a situation. I'm like, well, that was a shit show. And, <laughs> you know, and just and like, oh, I get them next time, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, like, like you said, to acknowledge that and just, you know, accept that that's part of the journey, uh, you know, of letting go the expectations of, oh, every time I sit down, I'm going to reach this, uh, this place of enlightenment. And it's like, nah, not every time, buddy. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's not so cute. Like sometimes you have like one annoying song that you don't even like on repeat. One time you're going to have, you know, your worst shame spiral moment pop into your head and then you can't get out of it. Like it's just going to be messy and chaotic. And exactly like if you can laugh about it, if you can be gentle about it, I think that's even more important than getting to that zend out, like, you know, peaceful place. It's all about just kind of like right in the wave of whatever comes. Well, you know, so working for uh, the, a matchmaker service uh, and what are people looking for and what should people be looking for? Because I always hear women say, I can't find a good man. And it's like, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, what does that even mean? A good man? Like we I think part of it is that we're using terms that are so vague that even if what we wanted fell in front of us, we wouldn't identify it because it, it you know. It's we haven't quite defined the the values or the characters of, of of who we're looking for. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think you know when clients come to us, they think that they're coming to us because they just want to find their soulmate. But I know, you know, I have this little hidden agenda of let me help you find what really matters because clearly something that you've been doing hasn't been working, and let me help you really assess what's important to you. So. You know, when my clients come to me, I'll usually do at least a one hour long intake where I'll talk about family history. I'll talk about past relationships, what, you know, what they think is important in a partner, what are their top three must haves and top three deal breakers. So in that, I'm, I'm really looking for themes and trends. So, you know, what are their friendships like? What are their relationships like? Mostly because I want to assess for attachment style. So are they more anxiously attached? Are they avoidant? Are they telling me, um, you know, I meet so many people and then, you know, I just, I just never like any of them. Like, you know, I can never, once it starts to like get serious, I just like, you know, I find out that they only make this amount of money or I meet one friend and it really turns like they're looking for things to kind of break something off because they're more avoidant. So that's kind of the first step of it is like, okay how are you relating to the world? How are you connecting to other people and how are there any maladaptive qualities to that? Is there anything that's getting in your way? Uh, and then the second thing I'm looking for are the qualities that they're looking for in a partner. So 
if I have somebody who says my top three must haves is they must be over six feet tall. They must make over X amount of money and they, uh, must be very well traveled. It's like, mm, okay. So right off the bat, if you want someone who's over six feet tall, that's what 14% of the population, let's assume half of them are married and you know, maybe unattracted to you. That's a very small percentage of people that you're allowing yourself to connect with. So really looking into the why, like, why does that matter to you? So for the women, I'll say, does that mean that you will be safer? Do you feel more protected with a taller man? Um, same thing with kind of when I, whenever I hear that a, a top must have is something financial, it's like, what does that mean to you? Uh, what was your relationship to money growing up? How did you see your parents manage their money? So I really look at it as, um, you know, helping them become better daters and take some of the barriers out of their way that might have been there before that are keeping them from finding the connection that they're really looking for. You know, why is, is such a, a huge question to ask someone uh, to, to really get to the root of what they're looking for? Because like, you're right, we, we tend to search for the surface level things of uh, height, weight, you know, status, et cetera, et cetera. And getting to the why really, uh, it, it does open up the dating pool for you. Um, you know, uh, me and Michelle, uh, right before we started dating, I, I started thinking about the why and, 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 and uh, the relationship. Like I was like, what kind of relationship do I want? And, and, and what's the why? And, uh, for me, it was, it was about mobility. I, I wanted someone that I could, I could be mobile with and travel the world with and, um, and, and really want to spend fun times together, but also quiet times together. And, you know, I found that in Michelle, but I, I had to really think about, I thought more about lifestyle than I thought about the person. Right. Yeah. Right? Which is so important because that's right. What's going to sustain a relationship. If, if you're a homebody and she wants to travel the world, that's going to be pretty hard unless you're very independent people who have a mutual understanding and connect in, in a different way. So lifestyle, personality traits, those are all things that are very important in a match. You talked about tr themes and trends. You're looking for themes and trends in, in, your, uh, in the person's history going, uh, not just looking at their past relationships, but their family history. And then you talked about attachment styles. Now, one of the, the, the books that you recommended, which I, I have ordered, it's on its way, uh, is the book uh, Attached. And, you know, just uh, going on the Internet and, and looking over it, it, it talked about four attachment styles. So does this mean that everyone fits into one of these four attachment styles? So yes and no, uh, we all at some point will fall into one of those four, but there are so many things that can have us shift our attachment style throughout time. So the first, uh, you know, way that we form our attachment style is of course through our caregivers. So, um, were our parents overbearing? Did our parents give us too much freedom? Were they comforting when we needed them? Uh, that's actually how the attachment theory even got started. It was with an experiment of uh, infants and their mothers. And, um, you know, I'm sure you, you kind of know bits and pieces of this, but 
basically the uh, researchers would have children playing with toys in a room and their mothers would be there. And then they would ask their moms to walk out of the room and see how the child reacted. So some children would kind of go on playing with their toys and be unbothered that their mother left. Uh, some children would start crying, but then when the researcher tried to console them, they were consolable and then they went on playing. And some children were inconsolable until their mothers returned into the room or their mother would return and they would still be very, very upset at their mom. So that would be more of an anxious attachment style. So the way that our caregivers related to us and cared for us plays a large role in our initial attachment style. I think a lot of people have felt discouraged by that, but what research shows is that you know, while attachment styles in our early childhood will indicate what attachment style we lean towards as an adult, so much can change that. So a traumatic event or a really hard relationship or alternatively a really healing relationship, um, a really positive experience with a partner, with a friend, with a different family member can shift our attachment style. Um, and different partners will bring out different parts of our attachment style as well. And you'll see that even in the most secure relationship, you know, let's say that your other coping skills are kind of um, deprived. So like in quarantine is a perfect example. Some people are really stressed out in quarantine and are typically secure in their relationship because they're secure with their partner, but because they don't have access to their regular work routine, their gym routine, they're maybe not eating as healthy as they would be because they need comfort food. We don't have these other um, factors to kind of help us be more resilient. So we might fall back into our anxious, like anxious attachment style that we, you know, um, kind of have as a default, if that makes sense. So, so yes, we all will fall into one of those four categories, but it doesn't mean that you're stuck there and you're doomed forever. So when you discover someone's attachment style, I'm definitely, uh, Cause I, I've been in, I was, I've been in couples therapy before, but just looking at my typical relationship, I'm, I fall more in the avoidant, uh, attachment style and, uh, where I just shut down, I'll, I'll walk away. I, I'm, I'm one of those, like, I don't want to deal with this. Your feelings are too overwhelming, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but now I'm in a place where, because I, I'm more aware of it, I'm, I'm trying to be present. And like you said, uh, at the beginning of the, uh, uh, of the podcast is to like, just like hold space for the feelings. Uh, I forgot exactly how you said, oh, to hold each other uh, in, in pain. Um, and so I, I've learned to, to become uh, better at that. But I, I guess my question is, is so like when you're pairing people up, are you, are, are you trying to pair up attachment styles? Like, okay, you're, you're anxious, insecure, and you're avoidant, like, or are you trying to match up like two avoidance? How does that how does that play into the matchmaking? Well, I definitely never want to match up two avoidance because <laughs> I will never want to connect. It'll be like, oh, an issue is up. Yeah, we're both leaving this situation. Uh, but typically, what I will uh, try to do this is where the coaching really comes into play. So, um, if there's somebody you know specifically with an avoidant attachment style, um, I see this all the time. Uh, and it's usually the way that people say it is, um, 
yeah, like I really liked this guy, but he was in the middle of a divorce and he had two kids and there was a huge custody battle and everything was great. And I knew this when I met him, but he was just so kind, but he never really did give me the time of day. Like there's always these reasons that this person couldn't connect, but they were always trying to pursue them. So a lot of times it won't look like you're always trying to leave, but you're trying to connect with people who very clearly are not emotionally available for a relationship so that it resolves you of needing to authentically connect because you know that there's not a great chance anyways. So a lot of times what I'll do is, um, you know, it's a process. So I won't start with the most like, uh, anxious attached person right away. I'll start, I'll try to find someone who's more securely attached, uh, and, and pretty self-aware. And after their first date, maybe their second date, I always get feedback from both sides. So let's say my client starts to say like, oh, like I've, I've had this happen before. Well, someone will say, he sent me flowers after the date. It's just too needy. It's too much, right? Like their anxious attachment or their avoidant attachment style is getting activated, getting triggered. So I'll really sit through like, well, what does that mean to you? Like, what do you mean he's too available? You did tell me that you wanted someone who's going to be reliable, somebody who really cares about you, someone who puts you first. Uh, you know, what's coming up for you right now? What are you feeling towards this person? So, um, I'll always, you know, if I have someone avoidant, I'll try to, to pair them with someone probably secure or secure leaning towards more anxious. Um, but the, the most important part of all of it is more so the coaching so that when they do meet the right person, you know, they have the ability to be open to what that person is bringing to the table instead of perceiving it through their triggered attachment style. So your anxious attachment style is going to want to say, oh, he didn't text me. He definitely isn't into me. I can't be with him. I really need someone who gets my needs and will give me my needs. And and it's like, well, maybe this person had a hard day at work or maybe this person's used to a different communication style, right? Like let's not assume that their intention is to abandon you in this moment after 24 hours of not texting. So it's really just working with people when they're triggered in their attachment styles and helping them see that there's maybe a more neutral situation happening that they're just painting with their attachment style because they're really activated. Yeah. You know, that makes sense because I'm a very, uh, physical person and, and very touchy feely and, and, uh, you know, some dates I would go on, I, I immediately would want to hold hands and do a, I do a forehead kiss and I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm all in from, from day one. And, uh, I remember some women just like commenting, like, are we holding hands on a first date? Is this, is this a thing? Like, you know, <laughs> like it, right. was, it was too much for them or, you know, like looking them in the eyes while we're making love. Like they're like, what are you doing? Like, are you looking at me in my eyes? Yeah. Like cut too the lights off. Connection, like, too much connection, too yeah. much vulnerability. Absolutely. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's true. And, and, and I mean, but even uh, I, as a physical connector, uh, I have my limits with that. Like it's, you know, it's not that I want complete, you know, like I think Michelle is more physical than I am. So it's interesting is like, oh, I'm I like I'm physical, but she's even more so. And so you just realize that there are different levels of uh, physical connection and um, uh, and what that looks like. Like one flower is OK. Five is like, oh, are you creepy? Like, right, like exactly. it's it's you know, it's all on a, a sliding scale. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, too, like. I think across the board in relationships and in anything in life, 
I always try to live by, you know, assuming that everybody has the best intentions. So if somebody does something that doesn't feel right to my client, it's like, let's assume that they had the best intentions in mind and let's just verbalize what we need moving forward. You know, because I think that's another two things that we do all the time as human beings is just assume that the person understands that what they're doing is hurting you, which, you know, would be awful. Like we don't operate that way. A lot of people have the best intention in mind, but also just thinking that people can be mind readers, like, you know, men, women, whoever we're going out with, they don't know what we need yet. They don't know what we like. So just being able to gently and kindly express your needs, uh, so that, you know, you can give them a fair shot at, at really seeing if if they can fulfill those needs. Mind reading has to be one of the most destructive things in a relationship. I mean, it brought to bear. I just had a flashback of so and being in so many relationships like, you don't know what I want by now. And can't you, you know, and that's that was even me saying that of okay. just feeling like you should know by now. Like, how have you how do you not have this down? But, you know, I'm I'm realizing that um like how hard it is to remember all the things about a person, uh, but also like people change. So the, the thing that you maybe liked a month or a year ago, you may not even like anymore, but you haven't communicated otherwise. Right, exactly. Even if you can assume, like I think what taught me this more than anything in the world was being a therapist of, you know, I I went into being a therapist is like, I've had my own struggles. I've, I've gone to therapy myself. I get this. I know what it's like, but everybody's struggle is so different. I I could, I've gone through periods of depression. I could sit with across from someone who's also gone through periods of depression and it's wildly different experiences and we needed wildly different things to heal from it. So, um, I've really learned that, you know, you could be even using the same exact words, right? Like my anxiety looks very different from my fiance's anxiety. And so it's just about really asking so simply, what can I do for you right now? Is there anything that you need from me? And just if they can tell you, great, then do your best to do those things. If they can't tell you, then say, okay, like I will be here the moment that you know what you need from me. But until then, I'll give you some space or whatever it might be. But if we can make it that simple, it's like we can connect so much easier. But we really do assume that people's experiences or their needs are, are so similar to ours that we should be able to guess them and assume them all the time. And it's just not the way that we are. To, to, to get a little bit into your story, because you talked about you went through a period of depression. Is that yeah, right? yeah. I've gone and, through probably a couple. I just didn't know, you know, earlier on what depression really felt like and looked like. But yeah. Uh, uh, now, because you study trauma and neurobiology, how much of that depression did you feel was related to you being an athlete? Because so many athletes struggle with um, their mental health and regulating their moods. And partly is like the strain put on your body. And, and so many chemicals do get, especially if you're a cross-country runner. Like you're just asking your body to dump so much dopamine and serotonin and endorphins and all those feel-good drugs like and then to not have that, I imagine, was there like a post-sport uh, depression that took place? Yeah, I think even when I wasn't running cross-country and when I kind of didn't run as much, I would still tell people, oh, I'm a cross-country runner, right? Like there's a part of my identity that was wrapped up in that and still to this day is I'm a runner. Like I need to make sure that I say that even in this. So, <laughs> um, But I think also for me personally, uh, a big part of it, if I 
if I take a step, a bigger step back is that, you know, being a cross country runner was almost like a symptom of a personality trait or default that I had that was also causing some, sorry about that. Um, you know, depressive symptoms. So for me, you know, growing up because of different life circumstances and things that kind of happened in my childhood, I really drilled it into my own head. And this was kind of a narrative I, I kind of created on my own was, you know, you have to tolerate an, a large amount of pain. Like it is very weak for you to ask for what you need very quickly. Like you just learn to tolerate pain and you'll be fine. And so, you know, when I ran cross country, I had a shin splint that ended up turning into a stress fracture and ended up hurting my hips and my back. But in my mind, it was like, keep running. You know, you have pain, pain is temporary. You're not going to feel it at the end of this race. Just keep going. So, um, I think in that way, like later in adulthood, that wears you out. Obviously, you know, you need self-care, especially as a therapist, you really need to learn how to take care of yourself and to be gentle with yourself because you are holding so much. Uh, and so I think my neglect of, you know, my inability to be kinder to myself and to ease up when things were starting to get painful and to know how to cope with that and allow myself to access coping skills was ultimately what ended up leading to my depression. Because for me, it's like I feel pain to a certain intensity and then I just shut down. So my depression looked like a complete shutdown. It was hard to exercise, hard to get out of the house, hard to feel desire to connect. It was just a complete, uh, you know, shutdown of, of everything in my life, really. And how did you slowly pull yourself out of that shutdown? What what were those baby steps, those tiny little steps? I think the first and probably the hardest piece of it was starting to tell people in my life about it. So I remember calling my sister, who is one of my heroes. She's a lawyer. She's an alpha female. She's tough. And uh, she isn't the person that I would naturally want to go to, to be vulnerable, to be honest. But I was having <clears throat> a conversation with her and she was asking how I was doing. And <clears throat> it was almost like unintentionally, I just blurted out, like, I'm really depressed. I'm not doing well. And that kind of led to like having to feel a lot of the pain that I was holding for months, to be honest, I was really having to feel the difficulty and the pain that I was trying to push down and, um, you know, not feel and numb out from. And once I could kind of come to grips and not feel so overwhelmed by sadness, grief, fear, anger, uh, and it started to become more manageable, I started to think about what in my life needed to change, which is actually one of the things that led me to matchmaking is I started to realize, you know, I love helping people. I love being a therapist. I love sitting across from people who are experiencing trauma and being there for them. But at this point in my life, um, I don't feel that I have the resources to continue to do that in this moment. So I started to look for a different way to help people in a way that didn't feel as intense, as heavy. Um, and slowly through making those external changes as well, I started to, you know, feel a lightness and started to get back into exercising and eating better and, and doing all of those things that you read about help depression, but you know, a lot of times it's hard to access when you actually are depressed. You know, what I love about that process is I was thinking about, uh, you know, just my own struggles. And a lot of times when I feel depressed, I start, um, you know, I'm beating myself up. I'm, I'm attacking my character and, and who I am. And uh, the self-talk is, is really not as is, is unpleasant. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but what I love about part of the strategy of pulling yourself out of the depression was you asked yourself, what in my life needs to change? And, and I think that's just a, a beautiful way of, of lightening the load because so often like we're just thinking about ourselves and what, what, what in me needs to change. But there are, there are external things, whether it's your job or your location or the people that you hang out with. And, and asking yourself, what about that uh, needs to change my routine, um, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, also the fact that you started off by you, you called someone and, and you were just vulnerable and saying, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with depression right now. This is where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like it was like a, it broke the dam, you know, it kind of all flooded out after that. And, and, you know, I, it's, it's an interesting thing to know so much about mental health and to be in that role as a therapist and to be experiencing mental health issues yourself. Right. So it's like, it's so interesting to know what you probably need and know that it's okay, but to not feel okay and not feel like you can get what you need. So you know, I say that just to, to again, say like, you know, you can, it's so important to hear podcasts like this that are very authentic and real about the process because that's, that's what it is. It's messy and it's chaotic and it, you know, but it's beautiful because you can be resilient and you can find your strength throughout it. So it's not like this perfect linear thing where you go into a therapy office and have really pleasant interactions for an hour every week and love life, you know, and like have it have that movie montage moment that they show so often in the movies of like the happy song starts to play and suddenly like butterflies are chirping. It's like, it's, it's a hard process, but it can be as simple as just that one step of like being really vulnerable and raw and just letting that out of your body. Yeah. You know, in that, in the book, uh, the body keeps the score. He, he emphasizes, you know, uh, uh, antidote for, for trauma being yoga, just movement, whether it's dance, but specifically he targets yoga, but you know, at the, the foundation of it is, is some type of movement of, of, of moving your body, whether it's gardening or cleaning, but, but to get it out of your body, like you said, like one of the things that brings you, uh, calm and serenity is doing a hit workout you know like you you know that you need it you going through a walk through the park is just not going to get it done mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> right? i need to like, be aggressive about it right? like i need to get real aggro and just <laughs> sweat it out but some people are opposite which i in some ways envy to be honest <laughs> yeah yeah you know i i realize like for me is i i need that I I would love to have that hit, but my my knee and my neck just won't. It's just days where it's not going to let me do it. Um, but even so, the process of listening to your body like that is incredible, right? Like that's a coping skill in and of itself. Like my body can't handle this today, and that's okay. Oh yeah, sometimes I, I shut it down and I ignore it. I'm like, yeah. I, I don't care what you're saying, knees. We're doing this. You're, yeah, you're going yeah. whether you Who want you? to or yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I go like there's there's gonna be an ice bag waiting for you after. Yeah, you know, yeah get exactly. in there, kid. Yeah, you know I'm just I'm like an old old boxing manager in the corner just yelling yeah, exactly. at my body like we're gonna do this, kid. I don't yeah. care what you say. Um, and so yeah, every now and again I have those moments where like the ego takes over and you know I walk in the gym. I'm like, you kids don't know what you're doing. Let me show you yeah. how to pick stuff up and throw it down. And then I end up hurting myself, of course. And, 
Yeah, yeah. Like, my version of that is like, I'm tiny, but I can kick your ass. Like, you know, yeah. I look at like my body size is small, so I need to like overly prove <laughs> that I'm strong. It's a mess. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like we we all have this, you know. It, but it's just owning it, right? It's like, yeah, I'm aware of how ridiculous this is, and uh, and how ludicrous, and uh, I shouldn't be doing this, uh, and uh, and uh, but I, I need it mentally. Sometimes the the mind needs it more than what the body uh is is capable of and and so you, you just got to push it and be like we we got to do this and uh, yeah so uh <laughs> the image of that is just so funny how we beat ourselves up in these exercises yeah yeah and then you're like you know what i'll, I'll take care of you after like i'm you know we're gonna foam roll after and you know we'll get a massage like, like, I, like, it's like I'm trying to talk my body parts into it, you know? It's like, yeah. I, I, listen, you're not, you're going to hate me for an hour, but trust me, trust me. Yeah, we're going to be okay. We're going to make it. Because that's, you know, really that's what a, uh, that to me, that seems to be the key component of a relationship and is, is conflict resolution. It's, it's, it's not that people are arguing or getting in a fight. It's, or do we have the skills to then talk ourselves down and recover? Do we do we know to put an ice pack on our knees or get the tiger bomb or get a massage? Do we have those things? Or is that does that resonate on any level? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm honestly thinking going back to attachment style like that in and of itself can be so healing to uh, an attachment style that's maybe getting in your way. Like, can you self soothe when you're feeling abandoned? Can you self soothe when you're feeling like you want to run the hell away from the person who's trying to be close to you? Like, I think you know, I used to have a therapist way back in the day who would tell me all the time because I would always kind of have this thing of like, how can you trust people? How do you know when you can trust someone? And she would say, you don't need to trust anybody but yourself, right? Because if you have boundaries, if you respect yourself, if you can be kind to yourself, you'll know exactly what you need to do in each situation. So, um, and I think that's so true in attachment style of, you know, if your partner can't give you what you need in that moment, because we're human and sometimes we can't, like, what can you do to self-soothe and how, what are language are you using to talk yourself through it? Um, and I think that's huge, you know, in so many parts of life. Can you can you give us an example of, of what that would sound like, you know, for someone who's, you know, especially right now in the quarantine and a lot of people are experiencing loss, whether it's job loss, status loss, relationship loss that, you know, with China, they were showing the trends of, 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 of pandemics like this and plagues where there's a huge divorce rate afterwards and and so many people are are their identity is attached to their relationship and their marriage uh what kind of self-soothing uh techniques can can people deploy so that they can they can thrive on the other side of this yeah i mean there's a couple different things that i've you know found to be helpful for myself and that i've found to be helpful for past clients um and i think the first and foremost, like really notice how you're speaking to yourself throughout this whole thing. So are you saying like, I'm a failure, I'm never going to get another job again? Or are you saying, I'm going to be okay, this is a really hard time. But, you know, my favorite line to say to myself when anything hard is going on is, you know, this is really hard right now, but it's okay. And I'm going to be okay, because there's no other choice, right? Like, so I like to just tell myself, like, at the end of this, no matter how bumpy it is, it's, it has to be okay, because I know it will be. 
Um, the other part of it is like really tuning into your physiological experience of the loss of the stress of the pain. A lot of times our bodies are really informing our thoughts. So you'll notice, you know, if you, some people get pits in their stomachs some people get shortness of breath, like our nervous system is always responding to our emotional distress. So if we can regulate our nervous system through resourcing, like we spoke about earlier, accessing a more positive memory, a more positive experience, uh, try to engage your five senses in something pleasant. So whether it's smelling, you know, essential oils or listening to a great song or, um, you know, looking at something positive, watching something funny, those kinds of things really help us to get to a more neutral place where we can really access what we need to, to cope with whatever we're being faced with, whether it's a divorce, whether it's losing our job, any kind of loss that we're going through, it kind of like bumps up our resiliency. So we can be in a zone where we can actually do and act in the ways that we need to, because otherwise we become paralyzed. Sometimes we just feel so overwhelmed by grief and loss and discomfort that we can't do what we need to. So I think first and foremost, it's catering to your mind, your thoughts, your body, um, and talk to other people who are having similar experiences. I think that, you know, one of the most beautiful things that's coming out of this and all of the, you know, sadness and grief that everyone's experiencing is that the world is experiencing something together, which is very rare. And there are so many different people to talk to and so many ways to connect with people who are experiencing this. And I think that that is so important in reducing shame that comes with, you know, what we're feeling. I think a lot of times when we feel something uncomfortable, we pile on the shame. So it's like, all right, I'm feeling bad. Let me just make myself feel even worse about this and feel a bunch of shame about feeling bad. But when we can connect with people and talk about it, um, it really reduces that shame and allows us to kind of be in a place of acceptance that that there's a lot of pain happening right now. And, and that's okay. We can just hold ourselves and each other in the pain. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us today. Uh, are, are there any uh, strategies or, or tools or coping mechanisms that we haven't talked about, things that couples out there, especially during this quarantine, during this time that they they should know or be aware of or any, any other useful tidbits we left on the table, we left off the table? I would say communication is key more than ever right now. Tell your partner or whoever you're quarantined with, your roommate, whatever you need, be very honest about that. Tune into your needs and, you know, so important to take time for yourself right now. So even if you're you know, quarantined with a roommate, if you're quarantined with a partner, make sure you're still getting that alone time, really nurture yourself, be there for yourself. And it's not selfish to just need some space and some time alone. So if that's in a room, in a corner, even in a meditation, you know, do what you got to do to get that alone time, because that's just as important as uh, staying connected. And then last question, and I ask this of all my guests, uh, I always feel like there's one person who may be listening in that uh, is on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? I would say before you kill yourself, know that there are people who can so relate to what you're going through. There are people that would love to connect with you. 
and it's okay that you're feeling what you're feeling, but it's just about what you do with it. And there are so many different choices of what you can do with it. So feel free to access any one of those positive coping skills or any of those options to seek help because your pain and your suffering is okay and it's hard, but it's just all about what you do with it. Rebecca Macias, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not an ep- uh, uh, a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE number, for you uh, going to a therapist, going to a coach, going to group therapy, calling a friend, call an enemy, call somebody and, and let them know what you're feeling, what your thoughts are, what you're going through. Uh, lay it all out there. Take the chance and, and, and to be vulnerable and, and know that your story needs to be heard and that there are, there are other options. Uh, go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. I thank you all. Rebecca, Macias, please plug all your things. Where can people find you? Say, shamelessly plug. Uh, right now you can find me mostly on three day rule.com. I will be offering a webinar in about two weeks through three day rule.com on attachment styles and how we can connect and find the right partners, understanding our own attachment styles. Um, so you can find me mostly there. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you listeners. And we will talk to you soon.